you know, the biggest piece is learning when to step in and support your teams and when to let them do their things their way, even sometimes if it's different the way you do them. I'm super excited. We have the former CEO of Buddy's Pizza, Ruby's Tequila, and so many more, managing director at Capital Spring, owner of Lulu's Pizza, CEO of Sizzling Platter, Jim Ballis. Am I saying it right, Ballis? Ballis, yes, very close. Ballis, I love your hat. Thank you. I've seen it on Twitter, on VC Twitter. (laughs) You know, I have a hat like that. It says burn multiple right now. (laughs) You know, better be below 0.5. Thank you so much for making some time today. You bet, you bet. I have another hat that has adjusted EBITDA on it because it seems that's what we're buying off of these days. So yes, uh, depends which mood I'm in. <laughs> I love it. I want to do one that has net GMV and not just GMV because it sounds better than it is. Now we're just getting into niche like investor jokes. You know, exactly 0.2% of the audience laughing right now at these jokes. Thank you so much for making it, spending some time with us at Power Lunch. You're currently the CEO of a multi-branded franchise business operating restaurants in the US and Mexico. How do we get here? Like, did you know you're going to be this awesome restaurateur? Like, would love to hear a little bit about your journey. Yeah, I mean, like most others, you know, I started in the restaurant space when I was very young. Grew up in New York City. Where? Uh, Upper West Side, 91st River. My mom lives on 73rd. The east side. You know, I had my first job at ice cream shop on Columbus Avenue, you know, in the summers, busboy, multiple restaurant positions throughout my career. Didn't really want to do that. Went to college, had a small catering company there, and also developed a food service advisory committee for the students to interact with the people that ran the food service establishment. So kind of in food my whole life. Graduated, departed from the restaurant space for a little bit, came back, Started my own advisory firm called the Restaurant Management Group. We did a lot of advisory work for lenders that had restaurant loans that were in default. That evolved into a lot more sponsor clients. And that's where, you know, I held a lot of CEO positions of various businesses through that, those engagements and that firm, and then joined Capital Spring about 10 years ago, you know, as they moved away from lending and into actually equity investing. And, you know, I've been the CEO of three of their portfolio businesses now. This is the third sizzling platter. So, you know, wear two hats, a sizzling platter hat, you know, which is a great company. We've grown from a little over 300 units to, you know, now 730 and substantial increase in EBITDA over that same time period. It's been a very exciting journey there. And then, you know, Capital Spring, you know, when I was at the firm, our our funds were smaller than they are today. Our our latest fund was a billion dollars and we have close to 3 billion under management and 4,000 restaurants in our portfolio. So uh, it's been a great journey. That's an incredible journey. Before we continue to go deeper into your journey, you said this, uh, Lulu Pizza is the best pizza by slice outside of New York. You said this, first of all, brave words to put together. What's your favorite pizza joint in New York? Um, you know, my favorite actually just closed. It was on, it was in the 30s on 3rd. I think it was called Mimi's. I used to go there quite a bit. It's all about the re-thermalized slice, in my opinion. And, and one thing, the recipe that we developed at Lulu's is we actually put a little bit of molasses in their dough. And so when you re-thermalize a slice, mm-hmm. it does better than sugar as far as crispiness of the crust. And so when you reheat the slice, you get that really good crunch. And, you know, that's what part of what makes a great pizza. And then the sauce, you know, we make our sauce from scratch with fresh garlic and it's very flavorful. Hey, so you've recently stated that you've seen a slight pullback in delivery services post-COVID. Would love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts around that. Why do you think that's happening? Is it gas prices? Is it like, what is it happening? Is it is it the fee structure or a consumer behavior? Would love to you know uh, hear your thoughts there. 
Yeah, I mean, pretty simply, I do think it's a cost issue. I think it's, you know, people are belt tightening a little bit and they're saying I can go pick it up versus having it delivered. You know, as you look at the cost of an item, the increase in costs, the fees, the tipping, all in, the price is almost doubled by the time it gets to your door. And so unless you're, you know, very focused on the convenience aspect and for somebody like me, a lot of times when I travel and I get to a hotel and, you know, I need lunch and I just don't have time to go out and get it or it's a that I'm not familiar with, you know, the conveniences outweighs any cost to some degree. And so, you know, I'm more inclined to order in those situations. But, you know, even on a personal basis, you know, my wife said the other day, should we get takeout? You know, she's like, last time it was like $76, it should have been $35. I'm just going to go get it. And I think that's representative of the kind of transitioning mindset. I read an article, I think just this week, that some of the self-serve kiosk at grocery stores are now asking for tips. Uh, I don't know if you caught this one. I was at a coffee machine in an airport and it asked for a tip. And I was like, are you kidding me right now? Like, I don't know. I, know. I saw a TikTok when someone, like a gentleman opened the door for a lady and at the end had a, like a tipping on the phone saying like, hey, 15, 20, 30%. So it's definitely getting out of control. And you know, if you look, the hourlies are increasing everywhere as well. So it's just like, there's no winning for restaurants. What do you think are some of the other challenges facing the restaurant industry? I know you've talked about quiet quitting and a couple of the other things. Would love for you to dig into it a little bit, if able. Yeah, I mean, legislation, you know, whether it's NRLB's expansion of you know, with the joint employer definition that's being proposed right now, and, and a huge thanks to Mansion for strongly opposing it. To those, anybody listening, go out and try to fight this, even if you're not a franchise, because this is one step towards, you know, a broader somewhat of a unionization effort. So I think, you know, that generally is a headwind for the industry. You know, AB 1228 in California, certainly while the compromise, you know, is not a great situation, you know, jumping up to $20 an hour April 1st from what would have been $18 an hour would have passed, I think, in the November ballot of next year. Still, you know, the fact that it's not a step up, it's a jump up is definitely going to be a challenge for operators that fall under that 60 unit plus in addition to those around QSRs because while it only applies to QSRs with 60 or more stores and, and by the way if you're a two unit Domino's operator in California you're going to be subject to it because Domino's has more than 60 stores you know when the guy next to you is paying $20 an hour what are you going to do some of the legislation is definitely be a headwind and a challenge for the space thankfully you know, labor has come back quite a bit. It's not nearly as hard to hire as it was Q4 of 2021, which is probably when it was its worst. I think generally legislation, unionization, and some of the pricing components that, you know, are trying to be imposed on restaurants are definitely going to be a challenge. Unionization in particular, you know, back in the day, I mean, I forget what the percentage was, but a much larger percent of the working population was unionized. Has that since declined? A lot of the manufacturing has moved off seas and the unions have these huge cash coffers and, you know, the hospitality being the second largest employer behind the federal government. You're seeing a lot more move towards unionization in our space as you know they're trying to go after the largest employer. All of us as operators, we're kind of shaking our heads saying, how does this make sense? Our turnover is, you know, call it 110% at the hourly level for certainly QSR. The people that are voting for it aren't going to be there the next day. It's so crazy that uh, we would have it. But So I think that's a headwind. I think we're sort of an inflection point of automation. And I think there's going to be some, some bumpiness with the road to automation. We're going to have to do a lot of tests and, you know, real life tests because it doesn't just work in a test kitchen to see how some stuff works and downtimes associated with it, you know, you suddenly rely on automation and then for whatever reason it breaks down and, you know, how you pivot back 
from you know automation to more manual efforts. I think that's going to be an interesting challenge ahead, but I think we're all heading there. So we're going to have to move there, but we're just going to have to deal with some of the challenges associated with it. It's not like you're just advocating for, hey, let's not increase the minimum wage. You're also saying, let's put our people first. You guys had a big focus last year for your 21,000 employees and so on. Put the people first and improve employee satisfaction. So you guys are putting in the work as well on how can we take care of our people? Would love to hear a little bit more about how you're doing that and how others can like, and emulate what you guys are doing. Yeah, I mean, it was a big effort. We started it about 18 months ago now. It started with changing our mission statement to put our team member first, whereas, you know, before it was our guests and the brands that we operate in at Sizzling Platter, and, and then our team members were almost secondary, and we flipped it. You know, it begins with delivering unparalleled experiences for our, our team members and really putting them first. And it's not just a matter of saying it, but it's really living it. And so it's, you know, when we sit down and we go through with our brand presidents and they go through, their periodic reporting, while it's focused on financial performance and results, they always have to start off with, okay, we want to hear something about where we put our team members first, and then our core values. So, you know, our core values there are grit, G-R-I-T, you know, it's growth, respect, integrity, and teamwork. And so we want to hear a grit story as well. And we start off with that. And so that they understand too, that we're prioritizing it. And then on the flip side, it's all the things we're doing for team members. It's everything from how we recruit them and making that a seamless experience, what their first day is like, you know, that we welcome them, that we have their uniforms ready, that we have their training materials ready, that we have some swag for them, that, you know, we might find out a couple of, you know, what their favorite sports team or hobby so that other people can kind of talk to them at a personal level. You know, some employee sentiment feedback. How was your first week? Were you trained properly? Did you get enough hours? Was your manager fair with you and and helped you and supported you? You know, throughout their sort of journey up and through their first year, you know, we're celebrating 90 days, really focusing on areas where we can support our team members as people. And, you know, when I even when I go and visit stores, I'm not saying, hey, how's work going or how's your schedule? You know, I'll I'll try to ask them something about themselves and try to remember that for next time. And so I can follow up on it and really treating our team members like people and, you know, a lot of employee sentiment, a lot of getting feedback of how we can make their lives easier and, and what their pain points are. What's the most memorable advice you either received or learned uh, to succeed in this industry? Either someone gave you the advice or you just picked it up from someone and that's been very crucial for you. I would say, you know, one of the best piece of advice I ever got was a gentleman who worked his way up from basically nothing and ended up with a publicly traded company. And I asked him what advice he would give me. And he said, you know, you'll always regret what you don't do in life. That's a mantra that I live by, you know, even in some situations where you feel insecure. And then, you know, I do think Einstein's definition of insanity, I view as something that is very valuable, you know, doing something over and over the same way and expecting a different outcome. The one thing that I live by when I go around and say, why do we do something this way. And if somebody says to me, well, it's the way we've always done it, I get very disoriented. I think living around, let's look at things of how to do things differently and go for it are two big pieces of advice I live by. Just in the last two, three years or last four years of running my company, I've changed so much as a leader. How's your leadership style has developed over the year? Like what were you known for early years, middle to now? Like, are you the same, consistently the same? No, I mean, and I'm sure the same exact for you, Neville. You know, it really what it comes down to your ability to develop people to do your job, and you're more secure in having other people perform functions of your daily responsibilities that you would have otherwise taken on 
yourself and said, I, I just can't trust anybody to this. I'm doing this myself. And I think, you know, the biggest piece is learning when to step in and support your teams and when to let them do their things their way. Even sometimes if it's different the way you do them, whether it's stylistically or fundamentally, I think it's an important part of leadership and think um, developing people you know, to grow into people that do add their own piece of whatever they're doing, piece of themselves to whatever their their career is. You know, I think I used to be much more hands-on, do it my way. If you don't, I'm going to do it myself. And I was just doing too many things and, you know, you can't scale. And so I think changing that mindset and being a better developer of people, which is not just showing them how to do it, but it's showing how, who they are and them adding their personal element to whatever it is that you're developing them to do, I think is an important piece of it. I also never would ever talk about work-life balance. And, you know, now I'm a big proponent of delay delivery. If I check emails over the weekend, I, you know, you'll get them at 8 a.m. on Monday morning. Like it's not necessary to send it over the weekend. And I think that's something that I never had before, except in the last few years. Is that because you have kids and that happened or you learned something new along the way? I don't know. You know, my wife was just asking me what triggered that because she's definitely noticed a difference. There hasn't really been a catalyst for it, except to say that I had a somewhat of a revelation several years ago that if it's not urgent, why am I sending it out now? Because as a CEO of a business, you're expected to respond right away or they feel compelled to. Even if it's something where, you know, you're at your kid's soccer game, the email comes through, it's just that like tinge of like, oh, work versus I'm fully engaged with my kid's soccer game. You know, unless it's urgent, it can wait. So of all the restaurants you've been involved, with and you've been involved with so many of them which one would be your like last meal you have to pick a last meal one of your brands one of the many brands you've worked on which one would it be um, that's a hard one you know obviously tough, gonna, that's tough I'm gonna pimp Lulu because uh, <laughs> not a lot of people living in Boise that are uh, subscribing here but you know the Carnegie Deli was some of my favorite food, you know, of all businesses I've worked on. Can't pick a Capital Spring portfolio business or a business under a sizzling platter because it's like choosing your favorite trial. Although yes. I do have a favorite trial, but I'm not going to say it. can't say it. <laughs> yeah, I would probably say the Carnegie Deli. Yeah. Some of these brands you've worked with, if this version was to go, some of the early brands you worked on, what are some of the things you would tackle first? Like maybe at first you were looking at cost. What were you looking at first versus now what would you do first? Would you look at people first? Has there been a shift there or is it the same? Is it fundamentally the same as an operator to look at the businesses? Yeah. I mean, that's a bit of a softball, right? I mean, the answer you're going to get from everybody you ask that question to probably is culture. You know, I tend to be a little bit more excited with technology. So I'm looking at tech stack up there you know people first obviously you know the dynamic with our team members have changed as we talked about a little bit earlier but technology is also something that is a huge differentiator between brands right now you know a lot of us have the same offerings and it's a question of delivering a unique experience which used to be in the dining room and now more so it's the interface with technology and so that's a huge priority that, that i look at and really try to optimize okay last question who is out there doing some great work that you sometimes will send links to your team and say, that's good stuff. Let's talk about that uh, Monday morning. Hands down, Chipotle. They're balancing automation with guest experience, with engagement, with keeping to their core of, we're 
brand that, that stands for quality and natural ingredients and, you know, fresh cooked food, you know, showing team members on TV, but at the same time for guests that don't care about the food being made or assembled in front of them, you know, the second line through hyphen that's being made by a machine that just really, they just want to come and pick up their food, right? And understanding the difference between those two dynamics, you know, how they're leveraging AI. They're the group that, you know, anytime there's an article written about what they're doing, I'll, I'll read it. That's awesome. And this interview is awesome. And I know how busy you are. I talk to a lot of busy operators, but you really are a deployer of capital and a operator and running all these restaurants. Thank you so much for making some time. I really appreciate you. Thank you very much, Miguel. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.